writers, game masters, and creatives to the World Builders Tavern. Today we are talking about the sci-fi horror novel, The Outside, so be warned if you have not yet read this book. Grab an ale and pull up a chair. I'm Emma, your friendly barkeep, along with Allison. Hello! And our very special guest, the author of The Outside, Ada Hoffman. Welcome, Ada. We're so excited to have you. Uh, Hello, it's great to meet you both. (laughs) Uh, We are, yes, just absolutely thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, For our listeners, Ada is a Canadian computer scientist, a speculative fiction writer, a poet, an autist, and a Philip K. Dick Award finalist. We are so excited to chat with you about world building in the outside. We can't wait. Um, Just before we jump in, I am going to give another little housekeeping disclaimer. My audio is still a little bit fuzzy in this episode. If you listen to last episode, it's the same thing. Uh, (laughs) My new mic here across the pond. Uh, But hopefully in a couple episodes, it'll be better. So there you go. Blame Ireland. Blame Ireland. It's Ireland's fault. Uh, (laughs) With that out of the way, Allison, uh, would you mind giving us a summary of the book? Yes. The Outside is about an autistic scientist, Yasira Shien, who has developed a new energy drive, but when she activates it, reality warps, destroying the space station and everyone aboard. The AI gods who rule the galaxy declare her work heretical, and Yasira is abducted by their agents. Instead of simply executing her, they offer mercy if she'll help them hunt down a bigger target, her own mysterious banished mentor. With her homeworld's fate in the balance, Yasira must choose who to trust, the gods and their ruthless post-human angels, or the rebel scientist whose unorthodox mathematics could turn her world inside out. Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> yeah, no, you, know, you need to put a dun-dun-dun after that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think we'll jump in with mine and Ali's reactions to the book and the world building real quick, and then Ada, we want to hear all from you. So Ali, why don't you tell us how did you... So you read this book a couple of times, right? Uh, yeah, I, I'm the one who suggested we talk about this on the podcast yes, because... I really loved it the first time I read it, and it also changed my perspective of the horror genre, because hate is a little bit of a strong word, maybe, (laughs) but I did not like horror at all. I I don't like being scared, like I didn't, I just, it wasn't my thing, and I picked up this book because I'm always looking for um, neurodivergent and chronically ill and disabled protagonist, because I'm chronically ill and I like to see myself in my fiction and uh so I'm like oh it's horror but it's got an autistic villain and protagonist and I thought that was really fascinating and so I wanted to read it and I did and it changed my opinion about horror because I really loved it and so thank you Ada (laughs) for for doing that for me um you've been like the gateway to reading other horror yes <laughs> well you're so <laughs> and, and big uh, thanks from the podcast because that's how we got her to read other horror yeah. books for the podcast yeah so. so our other host who can't be here today christiana also loves horror and so she makes they make me read some of it uh for the podcast and they're very sad they can't be here because they really loved the book too um but they're vacationing but, in France right now, so yeah. uh, we can't be too. Everyone's upset. in a different country. <laughs> so, one thing I think that helped me enjoy this more is that it's not like people are being killed with 
or stabbed and all there's a lot of blood or like you know chainsaw massacred or anything in this book it's more like existential psychological type of horror so we're gonna get into that with you but emma what did you think yeah i really enjoyed the like eldritch horror aspect i haven't read i'm i don't mind horror but i haven't read a lot of it and i always find like eldritch horror to be really interesting and not as mainstream or typical as some other types of horror so i Mm -hmm. found that to be really fun and seeing how that played out and i really like the world building the sort of different take on like um uh world religion uh is really yes. cool that's often either like religion is often missing entirely from sci-fi um or or kind of like brushed aside so i thought it was really interesting to see like an, how a religion was created and it being a little bit more solid and tangible than other religions and the so the gods and the angels i found fascinating so i'm super excited to hear all about that um and so I'm also, so I like to start off with our guests, or I guess we're starting with our very first guest, uh, with the precedent setting by asking you what your world building process is. So Ada, can you tell us a little bit about your world building process? Does the world or characters come first, or do you come up with the plot first and then build the world? And how does the particular world of the outside come about? So this is something that's different for me with every book, or at least every series of books, because I mean, The Outside and It Has Two Sequels is a trilogy. Obviously, those are all three in the same world. But um, I've done with my other novels that I've been working on, I do different things. But in terms of The Outside, there's actually a really funny story about how I came up with the world for The Outside. Um, because what happened is it actually started out with some characters from a Dungeons and Dragons game. Oh, Love that's it. wonderful. <laughs> um, I, I had, I had been playing this Dungeons and Dragons game, like as a undergrad, it was this whole thing and it was very epic. And then of course the story came to an end and we weren't writing it anymore, writing it. Well, we weren't playing it anymore, <laughs> but I was still really, really attached to these two villain characters from the um, from the D and D game, who were um, Akavi, who you've met, and Evianna Talir, uh, who you well, I, I said who you've met, but for the listeners, I should clarify: Akavi is one of the angels in the book, and Evianna Talir is the vanished mentor mm-hmm. of Ysira, who you mentioned in the blurb. Um, and so. I was like, I want to write about these characters. I want to write them kind of going right up against each other, you know, because that's something that never quite happened in the game. We both had them as interesting antagonists, but they never quite, um, they never quite, one of them took over the story and the other one didn't, Mm. and they never quite were uh, contrasted with each other directly in the way that they are in the book. And I'm like, okay, no, I want to do this, but... I don't want to write a novel that's Dungeons and Dragons with the serial numbers right. off because I mean, <laughs> I mean, everybody does that, right? And publishers do not want to see it. They've seen it all before. So I was like, how can, how can I do this? How can I file so many serial numbers off that we end up in just another genre completely, um, but without losing what is so interesting to me about these characters? <laughs> and so I was like, okay. So what's the what's the furthest off genre that we could that we could get to? And I said, it was space opera. I'm like, okay, we will have these characters in space. Let's see what happens. And then so I started building the world. And I did start 
building the world before I knew exactly what the story would be. So I had these two characters and I'm like, all right, now how do I build a space opera universe in which these two characters actually make sense, <laughs> right? Because they both had like, I mean, they, they were characters that were originally grounded in the Dungeons and Dragons setting. They had these, you know, affiliations with powers beyond themselves. And so I was like, all right, so clearly this has to be a space opera with something religion-y mm -hmm. in it. And so I was like, how do we do that? And I was like, oh, okay, we can do it with having AIs that are gods, you know, because that's a fun trope, right? People, people like that trope. And so I just kind of put it together, like, almost in like this logical deduction process nice. like that. And then it was my friend um, who I've been showing my world building notes, who actually had played the Dungeons and Dragons game with me. This is the friend who initially like played Akabi as nice. a character. And he was looking at my notes and like at first I was just calling things these random names. Like, like I had a name for the angels, which was not angels. And I had a name for the computer gods, which was not gods. Like they eat people's souls and people do what they say, but I wasn't calling mm -hmm. them gods. And my friend was looking at these notes and he's like, look, the interesting thing about this setting, right, is that it's an allegory for how religion works, right? So you should just own that. You should just call them God. You should just call them angels. I'm like, okay. So I did that. And then... I just filled in more details from there. That's awesome. Cool. I, I love how Yasira starts. It's it's somewhere, might be even at the beginning of chapter one. She says, I'm no good at gods. And she constantly says <laughs> that. <laughs> but then there's her girlfriend who is like super devout. And so you have all these different attitudes mm -hmm. um, towards the AI gods. I really love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's always important. Um, I mean, this is more of a character thing than mm -hmm. a world building thing, but especially when it's something you think readers are going to have strong opinions on. I always like to like show different perspectives on it through different characters and not just the yes. one, like here's my message, like kind yeah, of. Yeah. And it's yeah. related to yeah. world building because you're not world building in a vacuum. So it's like how, how your characters yeah. are reacting to the world that you've built. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it makes a lot of sense as a world building process. Uh, there's a lot of approaches, but this, one that you're describing where you talk about it, you figure out a character and then you look out from there like, well, what world would it make sense for this character to live in? I think it makes things feel really organic and really helps. So did you find that that helped you as you were then creating the plot to have those things already so connected or how did that influence the rest of your storytelling once you had this world come about? Well, to some extent, it helped with creating the plot and to some extent, it actually made things trickier because the way it helped with the plot was that I have a Kavi. I know what a Kavi stands for. I know how he goes about things. I have Eviana Tillier, and I know how she goes about things. I know what she believes in. And so right away, you can see, okay, there's this big conflict brewing between these two antagonists, and someone's going to get caught in the middle of it. And so that was that part of it, conceptually, was always very clear. But then I'm like, okay, who's going to get caught in the middle of it, and, and how? And that part was trickier. So Ysira was not in the Dungeons and Dragons game. Really no one suitable for this role was in the Dungeons and Dragons game. Like they were all Dungeons and Dragons heroes. It's a different kind of, different kind of hero. So, um, and the first time that I tried to write the story, I actually had a different protagonist mm. who was not Ysira. Mm. Um, he was this middle-aged guy. And I mean, he had a background similar to Ysira's in terms of having been Tillier's students and then having to help track Tillier down, but he didn't have the particular kind of disaster that happened with the 
experimental power generator, which kind of catapults Ysira into the story. He just kind of got picked up randomly by angels and they were like, here, can you please help us deal with this? And he was like, I don't know. I want to go home. (laughs) And then like, I wrote a chapter or two from this character's point of view. And it's just like, this isn't working. (laughs) (laughs) Like he doesn't actually want to. And so again, my, my friend, um, my friend Virgo, who had played the character or copy originally and who was still looking at my notes at this point, he was like, yeah, like we need someone, we need someone who's more like, what was the word? It was like, no, I'm not remembering the word, but someone like happier, someone more yeah. motivated, someone who's like, okay, I got I got to solve this. And someone who um, just had a different background. And so we came up with Ysira and that worked better. And um, sometimes it was a bit, the other thing that was a bit of a challenge is sometimes it was, this is completely unrelated actually, but I just thought of it. Sometimes it was a bit of a struggle to know what not to keep mm. from Dungeons and Dragons. Um, Cause there's so much in Dungeons and Dragons, right? It's this setting with a million things in it that you can do. Like uh, for instance, in my original notes, there was going to be, um, I mean, we all have, we already have Eldritch Horrors, which are kind of magical, but there was going to be like regular magic on top of that. Oh, like, why not? Yeah. Magic in space. Yeah. Um, and it didn't work. Like it just added too much unrelated ideas mm. that, that weren't, that weren't, they just kind of muddied the central conflict mm. instead of adding something useful. So eventually it was like, okay, actually no magic. <laughs> I think that's really good advice for writers because I often find even if they're not basing their world on something else, if they've just built this world and they love it and then they try and make a story out of it and they find they have to lose those details. Like, so do you have any Mm -hmm. advice on like how to pick and choose? Like, how do you know what's working and what's not? Uh, Well, unfortunately for me, it was trial and error. Mm. Like I had my early readers who were looking at stuff and they gave me some feedback on what was and wasn't working. And I just, if something wasn't working, I was like, okay, maybe we go back and we shift that a little, but that's, I don't have a coherent workflow. That's that's okay. (laughs) I think that probably works for a lot of writers. I feel like probably don't have a coherent word yeah (laughs) a lot probably don't though and that's fine you do what works for you yeah and it's a good reminder that the finished product is not we only like when you're reading something or you're watching a show or you're playing a game you only experience as a as an audience the finished product and so it's really easy Mm. to imagine like well that formed full like that sprung fully formed from the author's forehead and they didn't have to change anything and so then why can't I create, you know, why is my world not working? Why are my characters not working? And it's a nice reminder that, you know, you could have a totally different thing in the beginning from your finished product. And like that, not only how it does work, but how it should work. Because otherwise you're just putting too much pressure on yourself to come up with like a fully formed mm, yeah. thing immediately. Oh, uh, it's just kind of a side. I'm very curious about your original protagonist. Do you imagine him still living in this world somewhere? Like, is he experiencing all these things in an office somewhere in the world? Or do you think he's just completely <laughs> gone and doesn't exist? That's a good question. I mean, there were a lot of things that I did like about that character. You know, he's got this cute little polyamorous family that he wants oh, to go home to. And so... 
the trouble is that um, in the in the series, as it ended up developing, there is this whole group of people who have all been Dr. Tillier's students at one point and who have all kind of gotten caught up in this. And that character isn't in that group mm. at all. So I don't know if he... I mean, maybe he's in there and he was a colleague of Dr. Tillier's like even earlier mm. in the story or... Maybe this is an alternate universe where he never met her, or I don't know. I really <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question because on this read through, I was really noticing whose point of view you decided to write from in the chapters. And so mm-hmm. I'm a book editor, and a lot of times when writers write chapters from an antagonist perspective, it just doesn't work very well. Like the, you don't really learn anything new. Like I'm just not interested. I already know the antagonist doing this dastardly plot and wants to stop the protagonist. And like, I don't need to be in their head. But when I was reading these chapters from Akavi's perspective, I was just so engrossed and so interested in like, I sort of know that you're a bad guy, but I also sort of want you to succeed. Like... It was it was really interesting how conflicted my feelings were about this. And so I just I just want to know like wh- why did you choose to write from his perspective and how did you choose because you only write from his and Yasira's I think, right? There's nothing from Eviana's in, perspective. In the first book that's correct. Okay. In the in the second third book oh, it I changes. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So why did you choose those two? Well, um, I mean, I'm not sure if my answer is very useful because my honest answer is I write from a coffee's point of view because I love a coffee. He's amazing. I awful, but he's great. Yeah. Um, I I love villains. Mm. I'm a, I'm a villain fan kind of person. So, so I wanted him to be in there because I just thought it was entertaining. Okay. But I'm not sure if that answer is like your thoughts about oh, why that fine. worked for you when some other villains don't work for you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's partly because Akavi's he's not like a black and white villain. Like, he's sort of trying to do a good thing by stopping Evianna from, you know, destroying planets, right? <laughs> and so... Right. I don't know. And he, and he has such firm goals, and you also know that, like, the gods above him are going to kill him if he fails so I, I it was just really gripping to read from his well, perspective i mean since we're talking about the D game a copy was originally a player character right in that game yeah. and then he was a player character who liked evil and a whole bunch of stuff happened but so he has that i, I guess it makes sense he kind of has that protagonist quality to mm. him you know right he's got goals and he's got things that stands in way of his goals and he's gonna overcome those things and he's a (laughs) terrible person (laughs) (laughs) and um but i think i guess my my theory of writing villains generally is um i mean people people have this line that they say which is like everyone's the hero of their own story Mm -hmm. and I don't always believe that way because I think some people know that they're doing bad things. And I think some people maybe are not bad, but they think of themselves as bad. And, you know, there's a lot of nuance. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't believe that quote, like literally, but what I do believe is that people have reasons for what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, people get up in the morning and 
they're like, okay, I'm going to try and do this today. And they have a reason why it's that thing and not another thing. Mm. And villains have that just the same way anyone else does. Um, so when I'm writing a copy and thinking about, you know, what's he trying to do and what's in his way and how's he feeling about it, you know, and all the same stuff I would be thinking about if I was writing a good person. <laughs> well, it worked really well. So listeners, if you're looking for inspiration on how to write an antagonist point of view, check out this book, I would say. So one thing that I remember, I think it was in a newsletter that you had written where you talked about how a lot of people thought that this was a hard sci-fi novel oh. and that it's not. And so I'd love to hear you talk about why they, why they think that. Okay, so, I mean, people will argue back and forth about, like, what is hard science mm -hmm. fiction really and what isn't, you know. And the reason why I don't think of The Outside is as hard science fiction is because all of the science in the book is made up. Mm -hmm. I did zero scientific research to write <laughs> this book. You know, I have the main character who's a scientist and she's like, oh, I'm, you know, calibrating this machine and I'm using these units. And the units are completely made up. Uh -huh. I don't even know what those <laughs> units are. I just needed the name for a unit. You know, it's, it's all completely, like, it's completely bullshitted. But, which is why I don't think of it as hard science mm -hmm. fiction. But I think that the reason why people kind of mistake it for hard science fiction or just, like, put it in that category in their heads is because it is a story about... A scientist character. And now I'm not a physicist. I've never done the type of scientific research that Yasira has done, but I am like a professor of computer science. Yeah. Um, I've done research of other types. I do know a little bit about like how the scientific method feels and kind of what what it's like when you go through your day doing that. And so I think especially in the early chapters, there's this sense of like, not real science, but the feeling of real science mm -hmm. and the feeling of what it's like to be doing that kind of work and stressing about that kind of work and being like, oh, we got this result. We didn't expect, what are we going to, you know, how are we going to explain this? What are we going to do next? Um, and I think the big reason why people mistake this book for hard science fiction is because that process feels real to them when they read it in the book. So that's actually a big compliment, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I find that really interesting because I think a lot of people, a lot of writers assume, well, I can't write sci-fi because I don't, I'm not a scientist. It's like, well, you, you can make stuff up though. You don't have to write, you know, The Martian, which I also love, but is based on, you know, real science and how it might look you can just make stuff up like yeah you can, you can decide on your level of research that you want to do yeah <laughs> like you're well or what yeah. areas you want to research like you can research what like to be a exactly. scientist without knowing the science itself um which is an yeah. interesting distinction right <clears throat> like i just said that i did zero scientific research and that is true but what i did do some research into is mysticism mm. Um, because Dr. Talir is all about that. Yeah. Right? So I'm like, all right, what ideas is she trying from here? You know, it's not just ooga booga eldritch horror. It's eldritch horror that means something to her. So what's that going to be like? Mm -hmm. And so that part I did do some research. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, actually, that kind of brings me into uh, Christiana gave us a, a few comments that or questions that she had, that they had, excuse me. And... Um, so one of them was 
They say the discussion of the outside being portrayed as contagious when in reality it's rhetoric speech is that a kind of silent nod to the dangers of misinformation slash algorithms leading people down pipelines that end up being very harmful um, doing comms research. This feels like a big fat allegory for a lot of the stuff I see in my work. Oh, that is a really fun and interesting way of reading it. <laughs> and I like that, but I was not thinking of that at all. Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. I, was I mean, the story. yeah. Um, yeah. Christiana works in communications, so she yeah. so they think of this. Yeah. <laughs> the way I conceptualized Outside Madness when I was writing the book is, I mean, it's a big cosmic horror trope, right? You You become aware of some aspect of the universe, and it's too much for you when you go mad from the revelation, yeah. you know? Um, and I was, I was thinking to myself as I was trying to put this book together, I was like, you know, this is obviously fanciful and also like kind of problematic, like kind of ableist, but there's something about it. And what I realized is there is actually one phenomenon in real life that results in people like knowing or experiencing something that they shouldn't and going a bit crazy because it doesn't fit into their head. And that is post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's, it's not a perfect allegory by any means, mm -hmm. but the idea that, what am I trying to say here? I've said this other times and now I'm forgetting how to phrase it. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, there, it definitely fits like sort of PTSD. And I mean, Yasira mm -hmm. is probably also going through PTSD from all her. She absolutely yeah, absolutely is. <laughs> I assume. <laughs> and, and if you if you read the next two books in the trilogy, there's more oh, of no, that. She's it gets not worse. doing oh, that. Oh no, <laughs> poor Yasira. She goes through so much. Mm Christiana -hmm. um, also asks, was this at all influenced by The Matrix and or H.P. Lovecraft? The whole reality is a lie mixed with indescribable horrors and the horror lies within the fact it's so incomprehensible. Just feels like this novel is a juicy mashup of the two. Well, that's, that's wonderful <laughs> to hear. I mean, obviously, you can't talk about cosmic horror without talking about Lovecraft. Mm. He's not the only person who ever wrote it. Yes. And there are obvious problems with him that people have discussed many times before. But... To some extent, a lot of the main tropes of the genre come from there. And so I was very aware of that. And that was very intentional. The Matrix is interesting because I wasn't consciously thinking of The Matrix when I wrote it, but I love The Matrix and mm. I've loved it since high school. Like we watched it in a high school media studies class and then we kind of dissected it and dissected how it was filmed. And it was the first time I really looked at a piece of media and went, wow, everything in this is like a symbol for something yeah. else. And it's this, and like, I was so fascinated by it. So I'm, I'm glad it reminds you of the Matrix. Yeah, and the reality is a lie thing, sort of, very much. Yeah. Uh, it's that. Although whether it really is, is yet to be seen. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but like, even the book cover, like with all the sort of metal tentacles, it's very Lovecraftian, mm -hmm. I think. Mm. I'm glad you like the cover. Um, I could I could tell you how the cover was made if you would like. Yeah, I love Ooh, yeah, I love yeah. talking about book covers. Okay, 
so so my um when I when I sold the book to Angry Robot, you know, and they're going through the different stages of book production, mm-hmm. and they asked me if I had a Pinterest board for the book. Oh. And I did not, but it was like, what a good idea, you know, if you're looking at my Pinterest board for inspiration. So I just I made this whole Pinterest, and I think it's actually um you can actually go and look at it like it's public now, but I just put all these images in these different categories, like this is how this looks and this is how that looks. And then Anchor Robot went and they talked to the cover artist and they really zeroed in on this one image in particular. And it was, so I had this little folder of images. It was all like, oh, here's what all the crazy technology in Evian Atelier's lair looks like. Uh-huh. And they picked this one image from the set and it was a picture of a Japanese fusion reactor. And it was, it was kind of spirally like mm-hmm. that, like what you see in the picture. And they were like, this is really cool. I want to do this. And so the cover artist actually, they took that image for inspiration and they made it like even more technically and like in space. And like, it was, it was really cool. I love that color, like that, that cover. So I, <laughs> I think it fits really well. Yeah. Yeah. And covers are really, are, it's kind of like a meta sort of world building because it is your first introduction before you even read anything. It's the cover gives you an idea of like, mm-hmm. what is this world going to be? And it like fits so well and gives you, I think you, with this one, you know exactly like what you're getting into. You look at the cover, you're like, okay, I, I got it. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> so it's just great. It's spooky and it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Although interestingly, I don't feel like we did see that many tentacles in this book. Like it, it was mostly sort of darkness-y a lot of dark we did not see that many tentacles in this book um the scene that the front cover is supposed to be depicting is um so have you both read far enough to read the scene where yasira is like in her spacesuit walking on the outside of dr tillier's spaceship so that's what that's what kind of if you look at the cover you'll see there's this tiny little suited figure so that's what that's supposed to be and like when i was writing the scene in my head, I wasn't picturing it as like that many tentacles. Mm-hmm. I was picturing something a little bit more. I mean, it does say the spaceship is like, oh, moving and shifting, but I was picturing something a little bit more spaceship shaped. But the shape that they came up with on the cover is just so cool looking yeah. that I approve of it solely on those grounds. Nice. <laughs> catching. And uh, doesn't the character Enga, Enga, uh, doesn't she also, like, Inga. she can also have sort of tentacles or like long arms. Is that... Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, um, she doesn't have tentacles, but she does have like extensible mechanics, like tools. Oh, okay, that would be even more spidery sort of thing with the like, yeah, yeah. So not quite oh. technically, but like the long thing, multiple arms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love her. She is the. I think she's one of my favorite characters. Like, she's more of a background character in this one, favorite, but I love her. <laughs> Oh, she's amazing when because you don't get much of her, and then she has a conversation with Akavi fairly late in the book where she like gives him some sass about him asking to for because she communicates um via text in all caps. It sounds like because she's just too lazy to do it any other way, or or that's just what's comfortable for her. And he's like, you know, like I. This this is okay for me, but if you ever work for like anyone else, they might want you to add lowercase letters. And then she like sasses him and lowercases a bunch of random letters in her set. It was it's just made me so happy. Uh, yeah, there's some really yeah. good. Characters. I also liked Cisperinathus. Am I saying that right? Yes, the, yes. the spider who's just like 
jokes about eating everybody. He was amazing. Cisperidithus is also from the Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, game. I love that. That's, That's awesome. You can tell, right? You can just picture. Yeah, it, like, I totally. Spider. Yeah. yeah. That's hilarious. Um, uh, for, that reminds me for a particular part of world building. Um, what inspired the the one of the aliens, uh, not the spider one, has a completely organic ship, and they compare it to like a manta ray, and that it's like a it's kind of like it's a living creature, but it's also a spaceship. So can you talk about how you came up with that? Because I, I love that. I thought it was so creative and mm. such a cool bit of world building. You know, I would love to tell you how I came up with that, but I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was just always there in your mind waiting. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there was a process at some point. It's just lost to the mist of time. Oh, well, I, I'm so glad it's in the books. I love that. I love the yeah, yes. organic spaceship. It was very cool. <laughs> the only thing I do remember, it was originally a squid-shaped oh. ship. And then my editor was like, okay, you know, this a squid ship is cool and all, but given that we're doing cosmic horror and there are certain associations with tentacle creatures and cosmic horror like people are going to think it's an outside ship and that's not what you're going for so then i changed the answer that that's a smart editing choice i think (laughs) um one more just comment from christiana not a question but they said um i love how the inquisitor adopts the pronouns when changing forms and how he still feels correct as long as he's in a sharp suit even as a woman wildly relatable as an assigned female at birth non-binary person in a professional job i don't bother binding if the suit is sharp enough lol (laughs) (laughs) well i'm 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 glad you i'm glad you relate to that um i wasn't out as a non-binary person myself when actually I forget when I started to be out as a non-binary person but I when I was first writing these characters I was still figuring that mm-hmm. stuff out and so the shape-shifting angels were almost kind of like tipping my toe mm-hmm. into oh, that subject neat. matter like what if you could just you know change Switch your body over. I really you know, like that yeah. mm-hmm. I, I yeah. also liked that he mentions like not every angel or not every uh variant what whatever his race is does this but he feels like it it's how he does it and i'm like that's that, yeah. that makes me happy yeah <laughs> i added that in edits just to make sure i was being sensitive yeah <laughs> well yeah. i i appreciated that i i distinctly yeah. remember when i was reading it and we first see him appear in like a, a woman form and it, the pronouns changed mm-hmm. on the page. And I was reading that. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder, like, was because then I think it was that, like, another character referred to him as she. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like, does he communicate that he wants? And then on the very next page, it, like, went into an explanation of how he's cool with it. And I'm like, she, yeah. they, they've got this. They've got this. They know <laughs> They know what we wanted to know. And they gave it to us right away. So I really Answered enjoyed Answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I was going to ask if um if you have a favorite. So, Ada, do you have a favorite? I know it's like picking children, but do you have a favorite piece of world building from, I guess I'll ask you to stick to the outside specifically for any anybody who hasn't, uh, you know, read the full trilogy. But is there anything that is a particular dear child of yours in that world? Oh, gosh. um, You know, I would say it's the variants. <laughs> they are really They're cool. great. Yeah. I have a short story about the origin of Warians, um, uh, which is called Minor Heresies. And it came out in an anthology called Ride the Starwind, which is a whole anthology of like cosmic horror in space. Um, but just if I can plug my stuff for a moment, yes. I have a short story collection 
a single author collection coming out in December called Resurrections, and this will also have minor heresies in it, as well as another short story about um, Inca and Akavi and Ilu. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, that's going on my, yeah. on my to-buy list immediately. <laughs> Yeah. That actually leads us into our next question. What are you working on next? If you're allowed to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, <laughs> there is the there is the collection coming out in December. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm kind of, that's at the stage where I can't really say I'm working on it. Like, it's there. The advanced review copies are coming out. I'm working on the publicity for it. Yeah. I'm not really working on it anymore. I've got a couple works in progress um, that I can't say a ton about because they are, they're still at the stage where everything is potentially in flux. You know, if something, if the editor changes something, like the whole book would change. Yeah, right. Um, But I have this, I have this one work in progress that is fully drafted and I'm just waiting on edits for it now. And it is a secondary world fantasy. And the only thing I'm going to say about it is that I actually wrote that one as an attempt to like get better at world building oh. because that's the, that's the relevant to this podcast, yeah. right? Because um, some people really liked the world building and some people bounced off it. And um, when I asked my agent about that, she said, well, what I would recommend next, you know, if you want to build your skills and get to the next level as a writer, what I would recommend most is um, getting better, not at the high concepts part of the world building because clearly the outside already has that but at the part where you really get across how a place feels mm. like the the atmosphere of a setting and so I tried I tried doing that and I've got a whole draft novel about it now and we'll see we'll see what happens with that but so far people are enjoying the world building oh, in that really one so hopefully exciting. I'll be able to start it later and then I have another science fiction, which is completely different from the outside. And that one, I'm still in the middle of the draft. And like, mm-hmm. like it's working in ways. Who knows what's going to happen with either of those? Yes. But that's what I'm working on. Oh, that, I'm excited to read yeah, both that of sounds those. Great. I'll keep an eye out for them. Yes. <laughs> Hello, world builders. Allison here. Did you know that the World Builders Tavern has a Patreon? True story. You can help us keep the lights on and listen to our bonus after hours episodes. Find us at patreon.com slash worldbuilderstavern. And with that, unfortunately, we have come to last call. Uh, we are unfortunate because we are very sad to shortly be ending. But before we go, uh, we are going to ask Ada for their advice on world building. Ada, if you had to give our listeners one piece of advice on building their own world, what would you tell them? <laughs> no pressure. You know, this, <laughs> yeah, no this pressure. was the hardest part of the podcast for me to prepare for because I just think everyone's process is so different. There's not a ton I can say that will apply to everyone where they are. But I think from our discussion, the one, like, I think most useful takeaway is that you can always change things, Mm -hmm. right? Like you, you start with a concept, you're like, I want to do this. And then you'll always be finding out, you know, oh, I can change things. So it does this more effectively. And, you know, your world is not set in stone until you've actually published the book. Mm -hmm. That's very, I love that. Great advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Allie, do you have something that you're taking away from this conversation for world building? Or do you think that listeners should particularly hone in on? I have a couple things, actually. The Ooh. first is I really want to work on writing 
um, uh, while writing and editing when I'm editing other people's works, uh, villain narrators and just making sure that they have um, motivations and that you're narrating from the correct perspective. That's more character than world building. So I will also add um, the, the fact that Ada made up all the science just fascinates me so much and makes me want to be more confident in my own writing and encourage writers I work with that you can just make stuff up like you don't and you can be confident in it mm. and pretend like you know it all and readers will think you do so <laughs> so that's what that's what I'm taking away that's, that's funny because my like my the thing that keeps sticking I mean this whole conversation is great but the one thing that like really keeps sticking ahead is kind of the the second part of that which is the like research one part or a couple things really mm. thoroughly but you don't have to read because I it's so easy and I fall into this trap of over researching everything mm -hmm. I'm like okay I gotta know you know I'm writing a fantasy I gotta know like what kind of cloth were they using what was the fiber yeah. of their clothing <laughs> and their material like getting down to that it's like you don't have to you can do that like do that for a couple of things so you can make your world feel really grounded but like you don't have to do it for everything so you can yeah. that's why we write speculative fiction and not you know non-fiction uh if you're world building for non-fiction I, I can't help you so <laughs> um <laughs> so i want to second that one of the things that you know that i learned because i'm a professor now is that this is actually a really common problem that people run into in grad school is they're trying to do their background reading for the research that they're doing. And then the background reading just goes on and on and on and on and on. And you do it for like a year. And then eventually your supervisor is like, okay, okay, it's time to start like actually doing yeah. things now. Like, uh, so that's something I try to guard against um, when I'm doing the research part of my writing is like, at some point you got to cut mm, yourself off. Yeah. Yeah. But actually do the thing. At a certain point, you're never going to know it all. Never, ever. And at a certain point, it goes from preparing to procrastinating with research. And you got to know when that line Exactly. Is. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, this has been fantastic. Ada, thank you again so much for chatting with us. Um, this does bring us to closing time. Um, listeners, thank you so much for joining us at the Tavern. We hope to serve you here again soon. Uh, if you are missing the podcast in the meantime, you can find us on Discord, where the link is in the show notes. Our Twitter is at WBTavernPod, and on TikTok, we are at WorldBuildersTavern. And of course, we'd love it if you join our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash WorldBuildersTavern. And Ada, where can listeners find you on the internet if you want to be found? <laughs> you can find me at AdaHoffman.com uh, with, a, with a hyphen between Ada and Hoffman. And I also have a Substack newsletter. That is where um, Allison read the um, the thing about hard science fiction. Yes. And so if you want to go peek at that, then there are links to it on the website. Fantastic. Oh, you also host um, an autistic book party where you recommend... Oh, is yes, that that's on that's on the same website as same well. Website. That's on adahoffman.com. Really cool. There will just be in the menu. You can see autistic book party. And what I do for autistic book party is that I review autistic science fiction and fantasy books. So whether they have autistic characters or they're by an autistic author or both, um, I just like to bring that topic yeah. to people's attention. Yeah, oh, very that. cool. Thank you. All right, so look there, go look up Ada's uh, website immediately and go read their books. They are well <laughs> worth it. Uh, but for now, you got to scram. Bye, everybody. Bye.